Hey everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch, where we take a closer look each week at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I'm your host, Jonathan Ellsworth. I'm also the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Off the Couch is presented by CBG Trails, and the CBG Trails app is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. If our guest today wasn't such an accomplished runner, I would be very tempted to just introduce him as being at one time the world's fastest Elvis and someone who is extremely good at running long distances dressed up as Spider-Man and Santa Claus and yes, the king of rock and roll. But there are a number of other things about Ian Sharman that are almost as worthy of admiration like the fact that he has completed over 200 ultras and marathons, he is the only person to finish the Western States 100 in the top 10, nine times in nine starts. He is a four-time Leadville 100 champion and the only person to break 17 hours four times at Leadville. And it would be easy to go on and on about Ian's competitive accomplishments. So, in addition to talking about setting Guinness World Records for racing in costumes and discussing a few of his impressive wins and records, well, Ian is also a coach, so I pick his brain about the most common mistakes he sees people making in their training and the most common mistakes he sees people making in their racing. And while Ian is certainly someone who strives to keep running fun, he is equally dedicated to keeping running fair, and I talk with Ian about his efforts to keep doping out of running, his stance on what should happen to competitors who have been caught doping, and more. This is another good one, and so let's go ahead and get to my conversation with the Charmanian, Ian Sharman. Ian, how are you today, and where are you today? I'm good. I'm just at home uh, in Bend, Oregon. Well, listen, we have got a lot of territory that I am hoping to cover. And so we are just going to kind of get right into it. You know, given that you are just such a versatile runner, I think that in particular makes me really curious to know uh, more about your background and, and how you kind of got into this position you're in where you are competing at such a high level across so many different disciplines. How, what's the backstory here? Well, in fairness, it's mainly 100 miles on trails uh, are about the only thing that I can compete at these days. Uh, they're, they're even the 50Ks on the trails, the guys are going too quick and they, uh, you know, they come from a, a fast track background. Um, but no, I, I started getting into it when I was about 24, 25. Um, I was living in London and just wasn't doing as much sport as I used to. I used to play all these different team sports and um, thought that if there wasn't a ball to chase, then why bother running? I thought running was extremely boring. thought the same about rowing and cycling and anything that was just purely fitness-based. Um, and then um, I just realized that after a few years of living in London, it was very difficult to keep playing those sports the whole time. And I was getting a bit out of shape. So I, uh, I saw a TV show at this point about the, a race in the Sahara Desert, the Marathon de Sable, a, a seven-day stage race, and thought, that's what I'll do, because I, I love travel. I've, I've done a lot of backpacking and things like that, and I'd never been to the Sahara Desert. So it just happened to be running. That might have been a mountain biking race. That might have been who knows what else. But uh, I just thought, that's, that's the thing I'm going to train for, and uh, uh, kind of got addicted from that. So I, 
I started off doing longer stuff. So I, I was jumping in at the ultra end, but it, it took about 18 months before I was able to, to do that race because I had to sign up and then I couldn't get into the very next one. And so I did some road running, um, I did a few road marathons. And then after that point, I was completely hooked and I was running up to about 30 uh, marathons or ultras a year. Uh, and that was mainly like a Saturday morning, uh, get to the airport out of London, fly on a cheap flight to a European city, go straight to the expo, sleep in a hostel, run the race, straight back on a plane, back in work on Monday morning. Wow. So you targeted age 24 as when you kind of got started in this. Yeah, didn't do any kind of endurance running before that, although I always seem to be the guy at the end of a, a soccer game or, or similar thing that was still running around a lot. So there, <laughs> there's clearly some bias towards the uh, the endurance side of things. But I also actually think now looking back at it that doing all those marathons was uh, it's the kind of thing that either makes or breaks you. Um, you know, either I'd get really injured and it would just destroy me or it, it probably gave me a very good foundation, I think, for 100 milers in particular. By the way, this has been a, a recurring refrain in these conversations on Off the Couch. Uh, there's a lot of sort of self-deprecation. So, you know, I was talking about your how good you are across, you know, multiple disciplines. You quickly say, well, I'm, you know, competitive at long stuff. What is your road marathon PR? So on a course where it isn't really cheating, 232, <laughs> but I have done 221 on a downhill course. And that that is... That's significantly good. <laughs> faster. Yeah, but even that is nowhere near pro level. Okay. But that is with a course that was five five thousand feet downhill. Okay. Well, if I ever attempt a marathon, it sounds like that maybe should be my course. Oh, if you want to get a, a PR, that's yeah. There, there's a this series called um, Revel, and they basically just pick mountains next to big cities and use the road that goes downhill, and they are so quick. Although they trash your legs as well, so you, you have to train for them, but. Yeah, no, there is no doubt that that saved me, I would guess, 15 minutes. So um, so that's difficult to say that that was genuinely better than my flat race. So you get into this world at the age of 24, and I don't know, talk about the next 10 years then. I mean, did you feel like you were just involved in this crash course of figuring stuff out? Yeah, it's all, it's all trial and error. And also, I was coming at it purely from everything being very much about being an amateur, having fun doing stuff because it was exciting and, and the travel element being a big part of it for me. So um, I did some other types of races. Well, I did like a, an adventure race in Borneo, Malaysian Borneo um, in the jungle. And that was really cool. We get helicoptered into a, uh, the middle of the jungle and had to make a camp and had all these team events. It's it, not like a super competitive thing, but I just like the fun aspect of seeing new places. Um, and so as I was getting into it, I was learning. Um, there's a lot of trial and error. I was trying to read um, books about training, things like um, Advanced Marathoning by Pete Fitzinger and, and Scott Douglas and uh, other things like The Law of Running by um, uh, Professor Tim Noakes. And I've expanded that quite a lot since. But, you know, just trying to pick up some of the basics. And I made so many mistakes early on, as everyone does. But you learn from those and, you know, you have the occasional bad race and, and uh, it makes you a better runner. So I just found that I, I kind of really liked doing marathons. I wasn't running particularly quickly. I think it took me 16 road marathons to break three hours, which is you know, more than most people run in a lifetime anyway, but that's about a year and a half or two years. <laughs> so it's, a, it's not a huge amount of time, realistically. Um, and then from that point, it's just you know, little incremental improvements. And suddenly um, in the very low-key UK ultra scene, especially as it was then, I'm finding that I was able to win some races. Um, 
And I thought, okay, well, that's nice. But, you know, this is not like uh, there's a lot of people here and, and there's no prize money. This isn't like a professional athlete thing. This is just um, nice to, to have that, that extra element to it to, to be competing rather than just trying to finish stuff. I'm curious to ask, you talked about these, what, first, say, 16 marathons? Mm-hmm. If the learning curve for you, if that all of that felt pretty incremental in terms of what you learned and how you would improve, or if there were some big jumps early on and then how most of this stuff often happens, I guess, as we learn anything, right? It's like there are maybe some big leaps and then you really fight for those even, you know, minute improvements in areas. What was your trajectory like? I would say that in the first six months, going from no running to doing first couple of marathons, there was big gains there, just as you'd expect. But um, from there, it was, it was fairly slow for a while until the, the one key thing that made big difference was um, learning that recovery runs need to be really easy. <laughs> and there needs to be a, a genuine difference between a hard day and an easy day. Mm. And since I started doing that, I didn't change anything else in the training. I just made my slow days slower um, and it made everything else higher quality. And I took my marathon time down from, from 2.52 to 2.32 in about a year and a half. Wow. And the primary factor you're saying is more chill recovery runs. Yeah, just just appreciating the importance of recovery and, you know, just the concepts now that I take for granted that you have a stimulus and it has to be a hard stimulus to provide a a reason for the body to to adapt. And then you give it a chance to rebuild. Um, Simple idea, but it took me a while to really see how that worked in practice and to get the concept. Let's talk a little bit about road running versus trail running. What does that divide look like for you? Um, well, the road stuff is more for fun for me because, you know, running a 2.30 marathon, no one really cares about that. You, you, you can't really uh, uh, get sponsorships and stuff like that. So it, obviously the trails are more the competitive side for me. And I like doing big city marathons, you know, Boston, stuff like that. But often I have to throw in a different challenge. So this year, for example, I did Boston and Big Sur, which were 13 days apart. But rather than just doing the two marathons, I did them running from the finish to the start and then doing the race. So it's it's that kind of thing to, to give me ultra training and to give it just a, a different flavor and to make it exciting. Um, but it, it really, the, the main season focus is typically 100 miler mountain races in the middle of summer. So this year that's uh, Western States 100 miler and that's already happened didn't quite go to plan but it was it went pretty well and then utmb uh, which is at the end of august end of august how are you feeling about utmb um not bad i, I do actually have a bit of an achilles injury at the moment so that's holding me back but uh, this is the, the thing now i'm 38 almost 39 so uh, little things are starting to, to get a little bit harder to, to keep uh, keep the body in in perfect shape but I, I, I've not done it before, so uh, I'm excited to try it out. Normally, August has been all about Leadville, um, 100 miler for me. And so this time, it's just something a bit different. More about more hiking, um, more technical stuff, more scenic, uh, and a, a fun trip to Europe, which uh, got my wife on board as well. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, Leadville is coming up here. It's, it, it somehow feels weird that you are going to have to miss this one. Well, I missed last year due to, to a spinal injury from falling over playing with the dogs. So not even a running injury, just 
slipped over on on a wooden floor and and did like a banana skin uh fall and landed badly on my shoulder and damaged my neck um so that that was quite difficult because that injury was almost exactly a year ago right when i was about to head out to leadville um but yeah i had five years in a row that you know basically my my summer was go to western states go to leadville and that's the year basically that's all focused around that but i do love going up to colorado for a couple of weeks before the race and then doing it um so it's, it is a bit weird that that isn't the aim this year because i would already be in colorado at this point if i was but um but i do love uh, the idea of doing a different race as well and one thing we were talking about in advance um just before we started recording was how it's really important to keep it fun and fresh um and so doing different races is important as well as you know, trying to, to do even better at the ones that you've done before. Uh, both of those are equally motivating for me. Um, and that's also why I like road and trail and to do the, both of them in the same year. Uh, and often that means kind of doing a road focus through summer because it's just easier to train for that, uh, especially with treadmills and, and similar. And then once the mountains and the hills are a little bit more accessible to then train for that for the summer. And that they, they, they both keep it interesting and it means that it's more of a focus on speed for a while and then more of a focus on hills for a while and just giving different stimuli for the for the body to cope with. Talking about keeping it fresh and fun, we got to talk about costumes. <laughs> I told cuz I told you, I mean coming into this conversation I was like, "Whoa, this very accomplished, you know, you've got a British accent, so that automatically, right? To me that always makes you sound like 30 IQ points." <laughs> you know, higher and like more serious. And I think I had this sense of you as just being this like very, very serious person. And somehow I don't know why this was the case, but I learned about the costume thing later. And that just kind of, you know, blew up this, this picture I was forming of you uh, in my mind. Talk to me about running races in costumes. Yes. The first time I did that was 2007. Because, um, you know, bear in mind at that point, I'm doing loads and loads of road marathons and living in London. So for the London marathon, it's not like that was a big deal. It wasn't like I have to get a PR. Instead, it was I saw an advert that said um, Guinness World Records wants to um, have a competition for who can be the fastest Elvis to complete the race. (laughs) And the winner will win a thousand pounds. And that is to date still the biggest prize money I've ever had from any race because most ultras have zero. and uh, so I just thought, okay, well, I'll go and buy a cheap costume for like 40 bucks and <laughs> d- did the race, ran just under three hours and, and got myself in the actual physical book as well as um, you know, getting the, the nice certificate. And then I saw that there were some people doing other um, costumes at that London marathon. And I looked at their times and thought, oh, they're dead easy. It's like a five hour marathon. I'll, I'll go for some other ones. Uh, and the next one I did was... Um, the superhero record so i'd seen a guy in a batman costume do four and a half or five hours so i did it in a spider-man costume in edinburgh uh, and and took it down to i don't know 250 or something like that and then uh, i just did those same ones and some other ones and I, in total 10 uh, records that were broken but only four different records so superhero fastest elvis uh fastest movie character i did that as maximus from gladiator and um, did that around Rome for the marathon there. So, you know, running around with a, a sword and looking a bit like a gladiator. Um, the Italians did not get it at all. They thought it was weird. So in London, they're very used to costumes, like half the people in the marathon are doing that. And so everyone's cheering and they love it. In Italy, they just thought I was an idiot, um, <laughs> which was just a totally different experience, but kind of fun to be running around the Colosseum or the outside of the Colosseum into the finish line. 
and not silence obviously people are cheering but it's almost like they're cheering less for me to have that and like the sound goes down a bit as they're just wondering what I'm doing and then the other one was Santa so I, I happened to get a Santa costume one time and uh, thought I'd go for the the Santa record and then someone broke that about two weeks later so all of these have been broken since and I haven't actually gone for a, a Guinness world record time for several years but um I have still used costumes for other stuff. I've done a couple of ultras where I've worn a, a costume, mainly Elvis. And just last weekend, I was doing a 216-mile uh, a relay, uh, the Cascade Lakes relay around Central Oregon, where 12 guys uh, and 36 legs. And my last leg was called the costume leg. So <clears throat> everyone would do it in a costume, um, whichever team they're on. And then there's a prize. Uh, so I used my, my Spider-Man costume uh, and then just hammered 2.1 miles at about 5 a.m. in the morning um, and uh, no good photos because it's the dark unfortunately <laughs> but uh, just blurry photos and, and not nearly as good a costume as some of the other people did but I was trying to run fast and you know, our team was aiming for, for the course record and we, we just missed out on that but we, we got the win at least. <laughs> Definitely some follow-up questions here. <laughs> if you were going to go back and try to reclaim a costume record which race or which costume do you would there be a a target yeah I've, i have thought about this i'd like to do elvis um and do it at the vegas marathon so i tried to do that a couple of years ago but i just didn't have ideal training it was too soon after leadville and so i wasn't quite in shape and the time's gone down quite a bit now it's about 236 is the record so i need to be closer to my peak to, to be able to to go for that and the vegas uh course is not that quick anyway um, but that's definitely the one that I'd like to do again. Uh, I did buy after Halloween a couple of years ago in like a 50% off sale afterwards. I got a whole load of other costumes and uh, was intending on using some of them. But Guinness can be really weird about stuff because it's not like these are normal records anyway. It's not like they're very serious. And yet I was like, I, I was trying to get them to agree to different ones. And I said, OK, Jesus. It seems like a very, you know, well-known, you would immediately know it's Jesus. You've got the crown of thorns. You've got like a, a robe that's white. Uh, and so I've got that costume. And they said, no, we can't do that one. It's like, what? why not? Why can you include Batman, but not Jesus? I mean, what, what the hell is going on? Uh, another one was as a werewolf. Um, and for some reason, they didn't want that category either. Werewolves and Jesus. Yeah, not not a whole lot of similarities. Just walking around the costume <laughs> shop and saying, "Oh, that looks fun. I'll maybe maybe try that one out." Um, I can't believe how long we're now talking about costumes, but <laughs> I still have more questions. So, you know, let's say I was going to go do a marathon and was thinking about doing it in a costume. What advice would you give me? I would say um, the first thing is have something that is not too bulky and bouncy. You know, some costumes are really big you're just not going to run fast in those uh, if you want to run a, you know, close to your normal times have a costume that you're not going to overheat um that you don't chafe too much um, i tend to just cut loads of holes in the side of it to allow it to breathe better and then put loads of uh, uh, squirrels nut butter on to make sure i'm not going to be chafing but i also have to practice because i've got two or three different elvis costumes i've used over the years and one of them caused a lot of chafing um the other ones didn't so test it out um and then the other thing is try to avoid covering your face because that's way harder. So whether it's a beard or a mask, it's just harder to eat and drink. Um, and one of the times when I was running a Spider-Man, it was raining and it was kind of like being waterboarded um, because my face mask got so wet and it was oh just sticking God. to my, my nose and, and my mouth. 
So that, that they're the, the tips I'd say. But also, you might be doing it purely for fun, just to you know jog slowly. In which case, it doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, just wear a costume that's going to be enjoyable and get the crowd going. Okay, that solid advice from from like I don't know, probably the world's expert here on this topic. I, I feel like myself and Mike Wardian are the guys that have done this the most. We we've both done quite a few, um, and yeah, he he's taken a couple of my records away from me, unfortunately. <laughs> Well, I believe in you and I'm rooting for you. And I'm now <laughs> probably going to be emailing you every day to be like, are you doing one yet? Are you doing one yet? It, it probably won't be this year, but I might do the Elvis one, say, next year. Uh, I just want to have a good period of actually being in good road marathon shape because, uh, yeah, those, those times are getting kind of ridiculous now. In fact, I think there might be one or two different costume ones that are at or around 230 or maybe even below. So there, there's some good times out there now. That's actually wildly impressive. Well, bear in mind that, that usually someone who's that quick is pretty serious about their marathoning. You know, they, they don't want to waste one that maybe makes them go a minute slower because they've got a silly costume. Um, so, yeah, it's mainly just the fact that the really fast guys don't want to do stupid stuff like that. They don't want to waste a good marathon on it. Going from costumes back to this injury of yours that happened playing with your dogs. Mm hmm. I mean, you were on quite a streak in Leadville, right? If I have this right, wins in 2013, 15, 16, and 17, and the reason your streak gets ended by the dogs. Yeah, yeah. And by Rob Kraut, because he won that other year. But, uh, but I, I still actually ran about the same kind of time, um, but came third that year. So, uh, yeah, it, just, it was unfortunate. I did actually have a little bit of... Uh, a shoulder injury from playing tennis um my parents had visited and i played tennis with my dad and so i i had that and it wasn't feeling perfect so it was clearly a little bit off but yeah it was it felt really bad for the first couple of days especially because i was in absolute agony when you have nerve related damage you just can't turn it off it's not like you twist your knee and you just don't walk on it and it doesn't hurt when it's nerves it doesn't matter what position you're in it can just hurt like hell and so i had a couple of days where i was in excruciating agony until the painkillers started having an effect um but i was still optimistic i was going to go out there and then maybe i was just going to go out and watch or maybe i was going to be able to jog and just see how it started but it was two months later before i could even walk more than a mile um so i was i had zero chance of being able even to get out there never mind to, to to try and do any running or walking on the course so that 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 was a little bit disappointing at first but then um i tried to to look at everything that i do from a coach's point of view and from the way that i'd look at uh dealing with adversity in a race which is if something bad happens something negative happens what are the positives I can get out of it? So after a couple of days, I said, okay, well, this gives me more downtime. Um, it'll give my body a rest. Hopefully that means I'll bounce back stronger in 2019. And to some degree, that's been, certainly been the case. I, I got a half marathon PR earlier in the year, um, feeling pretty good in my mountain training at the moment. And we'll see how things go with UTMB. But uh, I, I was just trying to focus on what is good about this. It means that I got to be in Bend in summer rather than traveling. And this is a beautiful place to be in the middle of summer. It meant that I didn't have to train hard so I can have a little bit of a break mentally as well as giving my body a chance to, to have a, a bigger off season. So it, I always try to, to switch focus whenever anything negative occurs in a race, in training at any point to, to get the good out of it. Because firstly, that's a much more enjoyable way to live. And also I find it's, it's the way that, uh, that makes my racing much more successful because there's always adversity. It's how you deal with it, not how you completely avoid it. And so um, 
I find that ultras have really helped me a lot in, in everything else in life from that perspective. I think a really healthy way to go through the world and your life and everything that happens, you know, day in and day out, it's like everything is an opportunity. And even when we get fixated on a very specific outcome or goal or objective, things don't always go our way. And so to learn and to appreciate how to use your present situation, I think that's probably the mark of one, successful people, and two, happy people. I completely agree. I mean, this is what I've taken away from my ultra running. It's something that I've learned in the last decade that I didn't necessarily learn as much from, from other aspects of my life. Um, and, you know, it, it makes things more fun because no matter what setback you have, you find ways to learn from it. You find ways to, you know, avoid doing it again as well, obviously. But it, it tends to also be that if you can learn from it, you'll do better next time. Uh, and another thing that, that was a real motivator for me was thinking, okay, well, this is a low point now to, to have an injury and to be not even knowing for certain that I'd be able to, to train as hard as I had before because nerve stuff doesn't always re- uh, heal 100%. But I was thinking, okay, well, the next race I do is going to mean so much to me. So by forcing myself to have a break, but rather than it just being the default of, oh, yeah, I go to Leadville and it'll probably go well and just taking things for granted – it allows me to appreciate a little bit, little bit more. So that is a, a big thing to be able to think about before you even get to that next race, but to be looking ahead saying, this will mean more later. So this downtime has yet another positive to it. One of the big things about you is you are very much known for your consistency. And you also have this coaching business. And so given that you are instructing runners all the time, thinking about these things, and that you've been so consistent in your own career. One of the things I wanted to ask you was how often you end up getting surprised during a race. And I I guess I mean that specifically in the sense of like, I feel worse here than I expected I would given where my training was at or given my where you know what my strategy was in this race or on the flip side like how often are you like man I feel much better than I thought I would and I actually don't really know why I'd say like most runners it's usually that more goes wrong than you expect we're, we're all very optimistic we all are hoping for the day that is the limit of the training we've done it's like oh yeah this is my best case scenario and that's what you're kind of aiming for so I'd say given that you don't always get the best case scenario, whoever you are, um, that tends to mean there's more surprises in there. It's like, okay, I've got to deal with something I didn't expect to deal with, or my legs aren't as fresh as I thought, or my, that injury hasn't healed as much as I thought it had, those kind of things. Um, but I've definitely had some races where there's been upside. Um, I've certainly seen that in some hundred milers. Um, when I did Rocky Raccoon in 2011, um, there's a whole load of superstars there, especially guys from, from that time who were the very best, like Hal Kerner, Karl Meltzer, uh, Anton Kropichka, Mike, uh, Mike Wolf, uh, and a few other guys as well. And so it was a super competitive race out of the blue. And then I, I ran it and won and s- destroyed the course record and totally surprised myself. It's like, okay, well, I just want to be able to run with these guys for a while. And then suddenly I managed to be ahead of them and go, okay, well, seems to be feeling good. I'll just stay with what I'm doing. And, and it, it just works out. I've, I've had that with uh, my marathon PRs, typically a days where I surprise myself and I've got a little bit more than I expect. And given that I'm usually optimistic about that, that's really surprising because um, it means that I'm even better than my best case scenario. 
And then um, things like the Grand Slam of ultra running when it had uh, Western States, Vermont 100, Leadville 100 and Wasatch uh, Front 100 in 10 weeks. And so that was back in 2013. That was my first Leadville. And so I already had these two other 100 milers in the past month and a half and somehow felt pretty good and, and won it in, in one of my best times there as well. So there's definitely been a few days like that, but probably more days where dealing with additional adversity rather than dealing with the upside. But you've got to, you've got to be realistic about your training and be able to, to tap into how you're feeling and make those little adjustments in the early stages. Otherwise, you never get that upside because you always start off too aggressively, too optimistically, and it inevitably leads to failure instead of going off at what you think is appropriate and then sometimes having a bit of upside on it. Man, you mentioned that grand slam. How do you look at that now, that achievement? I, I definitely appreciate that, that getting that record was, it was the aim. I mean, myself and Nick Clark were both racing it and we knew that it was feasible, but we had to get four good races. You couldn't afford to have even one slightly bad one. Um, and that's really difficult to, when your legs are tired, when you re- don't get many much time to recover, you've got three to four weeks between each race. So you're not fully recovered and you can't do a whole lot of training. So yeah, I look back at that and think that I'm glad it went really well, mainly because it was so freaking hard that um, I wouldn't necessarily want to have to do it again. And, and that was actually a big motivator in the last race uh, at Wasatch was just to tell myself, okay, if you don't screw it up, you don't have to do this again. Uh, and I'm, by that, I mean the whole thing. I'd like to do Wasatch on its own again because it's a beautiful race, but it was just it's so mentally draining for an entire summer to do that. But it, it just taught me this, the importance of if you can just deal with things one thing at a time, be smart through the summer. I definitely learned a lot about how to train and what things really make a difference and what things you think you're going to like, oh, I didn't do enough speed sessions in between. It's like, you don't need to do them. You know, each of these hundred milers, you, you kind of get to the first one with the best fitness you can. And you inevitably lose a little bit of that through the rest of the summer with the reduced training and with just recovery from the races. But you get better at hiking because you do a crap load of that in the races and also between them. So yeah, I, I thought that was a uh, an amazing thing to take on. It still kind of blows my mind the concept of it. And this year, uh, Gideonis Greenius uh, from Lithuania is taking it on. And currently he's halfway through and he's about 32 minutes ahead of my splits um, with Leadville and Wasatch left. So he's, he's got a very, very good odds of, of beating it, but he's also kind of been a little bit injured through it. So um, that's the hardest thing. I mean, you, if you have three good races and then the last one you get food poisoning the day before, it all goes to hell. So it also made me appreciate luck I mean, if I'd have tripped over and hurt myself playing with the pups before Leadville that year, the whole Grand Slam would have been nothing. I wouldn't have finished it. It would have been a, a complete disaster. So yeah, I can appreciate that when you have those good races, not to take them for granted. Uh, and again, the injury last year really helped me to do that, that it, it, it's easy to, if you have a few successful events in a row, to just say, okay, well, this is what happens now. They're all going to be successful. There's, there's no downside. And you you basically start thinking that anything less than a perfect day is bad uh, instead of appreciating when you do have a good day. Where are you currently with Western States? Is it 10 consecutive performances, nine of which were in the top 10 finishes? Yeah. So I had nine top 10s in a row and then got 15th this year. Um, What I mentioned before about doing the Boston to Big Sur double in April 
I just never fully bounced back from that because I had a double marathon with the second part really hard. Then five days later, I did the local half marathon in Bend. Then six days later or whatever, or seven days later, I did another one, um, another double. And I just feel like I, I felt a little bit overtrained. Um, so there was that little element in there. And it, in hindsight, it's, you know, it should be fairly obvious, I suppose, that that was quite a lot. But it seemed not that dissimilar to things I've done in the past. Plus, there was two months between the races. So I thought I could I could do that and it would be good training. But uh, it was a little bit disappointing on the 10th one to miss out on that top 10. But the time was still good. I mean, it's still in the top 100 times in the race ever. And given that 14 of those times in the top 100 were on the same day, uh, <laughs> you know, it, uh, it definitely, when I put it in that context, it seems a lot better to me. But yeah, I mean, Western States has been my my June, my main focus really for most of the last decade. Although saying that the first few years, I was more focused on running Comrades in South Africa, which is about a month before. So I was training for that and then just turning up to Western States afterwards and it would go pretty well. This year, I tried to focus just on Western States, made a little bit of a mistake with my April um, and uh, ended up with a, a slightly worse result. But it was, I still, you know, I'm really happy to have done my 10 finishes and, and uh, have got the, the fastest time for, for 10 finishes by about a 20 hour margin. So in hindsight, your race schedule in advance of Western, was that, I mean, you said, I thought this was going to be good training. This was not that you had taken on certain commitments or other folks were like, man, we really want you to participate in this, you know, where you're like, ugh. No, I, no, it's purely for fun. In fact, you, you'll love this. This is very related to how I got into <laughs> running in the first place. I saw the TV show, Big Little Lies, and I've done the Big Sur Marathon a few times. And I thought, I want to go back to Big Sur next year. But I also <laughs> wanted to do Boston. And I thought, well, both of these are point-to-point -point races where it's kind of a pain to get a bus early in the morning. Why don't I just do them both as doubles? Um, oh, man. And, you know, in another year, or if I just didn't have the half marathon in between, probably would have been okay. So it, it's it's a constant learning, uh, <laughs> learning process of what my body can and can't do, when I need to back off. And, and frankly, you know, I was running well at the end of... Uh, a big sir i ran about the equivalent of, of how i ran in boston it was 246 for the main marathon part in boston 249 in big sur but it's way hillier uh, and much, much tougher as a course so um yeah i mean i at the time i thought yeah this is great training um uh, but also it's i did it because it's fun i wanted to go down to big sur went for some wine tasting in uh, sonoma valley afterwards and loved <laughs> that so it's it's not just that i pick things purely because I think, you know, I'm a professional athlete and must do things in the smartest way. It's mainly I pick things that I'm going to enjoy or that I haven't had a chance to do for a while, or I see it on TV and go, that's a good place. I want to visit that. Let's go to, a, I think, a, a more serious topic here than, than maybe we've been talking about. This anti-doping stuff that, that you're involved with. This is kind of interesting because I think I if we're talking about road racing or road cycling, yeah, that's where, of course, like we think about EPOs and things like that. When we talk about dirt and mountain running, I think I sometimes still live in this kind of fantasy world where everything is pure and great and clean and the like. That's a bit naive. And you have been doing good work on these issues. And I think as we are maybe seeing bigger sponsorships and bigger brand money coming into the ultra scene. We 
need to be thinking about this issue more. And so talk to me about what you're seeing, how serious the issue already is, how much of this you see as kind of preemptive in what you're working on. Talk to me about doping. Well, I definitely say a lot of it's preemptive. I mean, we, we don't know how much doping there is because there's not much testing. And even if there is testing, we saw in cycling that you can have the world's most elaborate testing system and everyone can still be doping. So um, a big part of what I focus on is, is the cultural side of it, that if you have a zero tolerance and just no one is thinking it's okay to dope, that's the way you're really going to minimize it. But you've got to have some testing as well. Even if we had millions of dollars to throw at this, there is no easy solution. Um, there's things that impinge on freedom, such as having to tell uh, anti-doping authorities where you are at any point. There's things like um, biometric passports, but even that can be difficult to judge how much of, say, your red blood cell count has gone up because you were training at altitude for three weeks versus because you were using EPO. So, um, you know, my, the background I have from this is that I started the US Skyrunner series um, and I'm on the board of, of the International Skyrunning Federation. And so from that perspective, I was encouraging all the races that were part of it to um, have a, a zero tolerance for, for dopers. And by that, it wasn't saying, OK, we've got lots of money so we can test people. And then if we find out they are out, it was literally just an even higher level than that saying, if anyone does have a, a, a doping ban, typically we'd say something like more than six months. So i.e. something that isn't a tiny minor thing, like EPO is never a six month or below ban. It, that's a you know, two year kind of standard ban. If, if someone cheats like that, they just lose their right to, to do races. So if the races are saying, if you've done this in the past, you're not allowed to compete, then that discourages people. It's a, it gives them more of a zero tolerance outlook to it. I am a strong proponent of there being um, lifetime bans if someone is caught doping. Um, and there's also things like the Clean Sport Collective, which has a, uh, a pledge that we've all made, that a, a good portion of, of the trail runners in the US have made to say, if I'm ever caught doping, I will never race again, or certainly not for money or sponsorship, but you know, can, can run, but not, not in uh, organized races. Um, but I, I feel like a two month, a, a two year ban is basically a slap on the wrist. And if you look at, say, professional sprinters, including Justin Gatlin, for example, then uh, they can come back and be the best in the world. And there's arguments both physically and, uh, and mentally for why doping has more effects than just two years. So it may be that there's longer term physiological benefits that they get fitter um, because of that and it doesn't wear off fully. But at the very least, if you get opportunities and confidence from the fact that you won some stuff and you got an Olympic gold versus uh, fourth place, these opportunities mean you can train full time. You can do all these extra things that you wouldn't have been able to do without the cheating, even if you have a two year ban. So I, I see no reason not to have lifetime bans. I, mean, I, I look at it like a, a doctor or a lawyer. If you're caught doing something unethical, you lose your license and you, you don't get to do it again. Uh, and I feel like it's the same with competing in sport. If you cheat, that was your one chance. Sorry, you, you, you can't do this sport anymore. Um, and so I'm, I'm very strongly behind that. There are a handful of people, not many, who have been caught in the minor amount of, uh, of anti-doping uh, protocols that are, that are out there for certain races. And they're all back competing. Uh, and that's the sad thing that uh, this, this weekend, for example, there's Sierra Zanal in uh, Switzerland. And there's a handful of people there who have had past doping bans and they're allowed to compete. Um, and I think that just sends completely the wrong message. Because, um, again, talking about the culture, if everyone looks down on it and says this is not acceptable or uh, like in cycling where they'd say, well, I'm just doing because everyone else is doing it. So it levels the playing field to cheat. 
if you don't have that culture, then there's less chance of someone doing it in the first place. But you've also got to have the, the stick element of it saying, if you do cheat, even if there's only a small chance of being caught, that's it. You're done. Uh, and the, the, the other element to this cultural part that I've encouraged is all of my sponsors um, have it in their contracts to say, if you're caught doping, we will never sponsor you again. Uh, and so I wanted that put in there again, just for that cultural element. So it's not, oh, maybe I'll get away with it and it helps for a little bit and I probably won't get caught. It's saying, okay, well, I'm probably not gonna do it now, even if they're unethical enough to want to, because if you get caught, you're one and done. And, and, and that's, uh, I think an important part of it is just making sure that is really ingrained in the culture of, of trail and ultra running so that it doesn't become a problem later on as the money inevitably grows. And even if the money never gets as big as some other sports, there's always incentive for people to cheat. There's ego, there's um, the monetary element, of course. But um, if you just make it very clear that no one in the sport is, is doing it, no one, uh, pre, no one accepts it, then it dramatically lowers the chance of people even starting to do it. So I, I definitely feel very strongly about that. And, um, you know, I've signed up for that Clean Sport Collective Pledge and I, I do everything I can to discourage people from cheating. You know, if I see someone joking about it, it's like, no, that's not funny. It's, you know, that's, that's taking people's livelihoods away. That's um, uh, particularly when you see it with Olympians who maybe get their medal eight years later when the people ahead of them on the podium are banned and it's found out they cheated, but they miss out on the opportunities. They're often retired at that point and they miss out on the glory of, of you know, what they'd actually achieved. And these days you hear about it in, in every Olympics that, uh, uh, you know, Shaleen Flanagan and, and some of the other female uh, U.S. Olympians in the marathon, they were saying, well, if I can just get into the top six or so, maybe I get a medal because they're assuming years later people will be caught. But they still miss out on that moment of being at the Olympics and being on the podium. Is this position of yours met with a lot of agreement? And like, yes, yes, we should be moving the sport this way. Or do you get resistance to this? There's definitely a little bit of resistance. Um, but I'd say the vast majority of runners, including professional or sponsored runners, agree with, with pretty much everything I've just said. Um, some have issues to do with um, certain things like uh, cannabis, because um, the amount that that may help, it might help, help a little bit more with an ultra runner, for example, for allowing their stomach to be uh, a little bit easier to cope with later in a race. And that's not something that they, even look, they were even looking for in terms of performance enhancement in any other sport, because it's not relevant. Um, but it's certainly people who smoke weed or have edibles or, or whatever, and they, that's part of their training. They're, they're worried that they might get caught out or if there's an out of competition thing. But even there, I mean, the, the rules are that you just can't have it in your system in a race. It, it is allowed um, out of out of competition for that particular thing. So th there's definitely some people who are worried about getting some kind of false positive. But as long as you have uh, a process for being able, you know, there's an A sample and a B sample, a process to to be able to say, look, test the B sample. It's not in that, and, and be able to argue your case. I think it's fair to say that you know it, it's up to the runners to to be savvy enough to know if they're having things that are going to be against the the banned list, um, you know, particularly medications. Um, and if you get caught out and you say, oh, I wasn't trying to cheat, I just had this illness, it's your own fault for, for not checking first. But there's some people who have an issue with that and, and hate the idea of maybe having a ban by accident. But I'd argue it's the same as knowing the rules to the race. And, you know, you, you can't have the excuse of, oh, I didn't realize that I couldn't cut the course. It's like, well, it's in the rules, so you should have read that. 
So do you currently have, I mean, where we would be drawing this line of, you know, for a lifetime ban, you know, just from the conversations and discussions and what we sort of read and hear in other sports, right? I mean, you see this all the time where, you know, some athletes like, oh, I was prescri- I was prescribed some cough medicine, right? And that's the reason that I got this positive or something like that. Are you comfortable right now with like where you're drawing this line for, I don't know if there's such a thing as kind of minor infractions versus major infractions that would put you, a, you know, into this territory of lifetime ban? Well, that's where the six month thing. So, so there's some things you could have that are considered so minor. It's a very tiny ban. But if, if for example, it's EPO, you know, there's no legitimate use for that. So lifetime ban clearly. So the, the rule being basically um, something along the lines of if it's a six month ban or more, then it's a lifetime. It should be a lifetime ban. Basically, if it's something that is fairly unambiguous, that it has a performance enhancement and you don't have... Um, well, even if you, I, I don't like the idea of the, the therapeutic use exemptions either, because I, I think that's a system that just gets gamed. It's amazing how many people have uh, uh, asthma or thyroid problems and have the uh, and who are who are professional athletes in the peak of shape, um, and they're taking these things because a doctor has signed off on it. You know, a doctor from their sponsor typically who signed off on it. So I, I think, to be honest, as well, it should be to the degree of if you need medications that are banned you're probably not fit enough to be able to do this sport uh, as a pro. Uh, that that would be my argument because I just think it's it's too difficult to to, to patrol for, for the doctors who are going to be unethical with this. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm just very hard line on it. And I think it's a simple idea that yes, you might very, very occasionally have someone who makes a genuine mistake um, or they didn't realize that the same medication in another country has different... Uh, different ingredients and one of them's banned but ultimately it's it's the athlete's responsibility to be um to, to to look this up and so especially if it's a medication double triple check that it's not got banned stuff in it before you take it but that doesn't seem like it's a particularly onerous consideration to me um you know i'm perfectly happy with that i know that i'm not trying to cheat and all i have to do is be a little bit careful about things like that to make sure that i, I never accidentally cheat um so yeah, I would rather have it be a, a clear line rather than um, than something ambiguous that then people can fudge. Uh, and and I would say that that line is drawn purely by um, medical experts saying this is this helps, this doesn't help, and therefore it is banned or not banned. And whatever's on the the list of being banned can't take that. If it's not on the list, that's fine. I mean that's that's the only way I think you can really do it. And then if it becomes gets on the list later, then you stop taking it. And, and, you know, I, I think this is probably a minor issue at the moment. A lot of it is really just about setting the right ethical standards because that stops people starting the cheating. Because as soon as it's endemic, you know that everyone's going to say, oh, well, I've got to do this just to, you know, because I know that some of the other guys are, so I kind of have to, otherwise I'm at a disadvantage. Once you get there, you're a little bit screwed, really, because it's so difficult to catch. Yep. I 100% agree with you. And I think, like, get out in front of it. And I think that, I, I don't know. I just think with every kind of connotation there is in, you know, with trail running, it is about being out and it is about challenging yourself and problem solving and being out in nature. And there's just, it would just be a shame if this became, as we've seen in some other sports, 
a question of basically you're always asking who's gaming the system here, you know, and um, are these new records or these podium finishes, are they legit? And so it's like, how about we try to pre prevent that kind of a culture and, and, and situation in this sport? And it just keeps it more in, in the general ethos of what we're trying to do, which is that this is meant to be fun and people get competitive and, uh, you know, no, no one is going to go into ultra running purely for the money. There's not enough in it, but once it becomes your livelihood, there's much more temptation along these lines of, oh, I'll just blur this, this line or I'll, uh, it's okay to take a little bit of that or to, to microdose because it's out of competition or whatever it is that person, that a person thinks is okay. And if you just make it very clear that, that no one else is doing it and it's not acceptable. I think that's the best possible way because it, it keeps our sport as it should be. I mean, who who watches the Tour de France and uh, can honestly say they're not wondering, oh, that was really good, but was it because the guy was doping? And the same with a lot of track and field at the moment. Whenever there's a new world record, everyone, you know, the, the, the thoughts are always, okay, really impressive, but it's difficult to fully appreciate it because there's a lot of suspicion there. I want to ask you a little bit about what similarities and differences you primarily see between kind of the road and trail running communities. I mean, there's definitely an overlap. I know a lot of people who do a bit of both, but of the faster runners, it tends to be focusing on just one. And I think to some degree you have to, to, to be able to be at the top level. Um, but I just, I like doing road races and also to some degree, they're less pressure for me. If I go to the Boston marathon, you know, I'm not competing for the win in any way, shape or form. So it's just me against the clock and, and enjoying it. But I do notice a difference in, uh, you know, people are friendlier on the trails. They help each other out more. They check on each other more. If someone is bent over vomiting, they'd stop for them in road running. You just zoom right past typically. Um, and also just things like, uh, just the general etiquette. Like every road marathon I go to, I'll have someone who will pass me in a big group and then go right in front of me and pretty much trip me up. It's little things like that where on the trails, people just are much more aware that it's not just them doing their own thing and that other people are there also to enjoy it. And uh, so I'd, I'd say, you know, I definitely prefer the ethos and, and the culture and the, um, the social side to trail running. But I do like the roads and, and I often do smaller low-key races because then there's a little bit more space and you don't get quite as much of the uh, massive 50,000 person crowd. But then again, you know, I go to the biggest races too. I, I go to the major marathons and stuff like Comrades with, with 25,000 people uh, in an ultra in South Africa. And I love the energy of that as well. I want to ask you your thoughts on this quest to break the two-hour marathon. I think there's pretty good odds that Kipchoge does it on his next attempt at, uh, with his two-hour project. I mean, the, the thing I like about that is he's a very likable person. Um, he's very admirable. Everyone who seems to know him says that it's not just that he's um, motivating and, and an amazing athlete that, that impresses them, but he's an amazing human being too. Um, I would be absolutely gutted to find out that he has been doping. Um, but it, looking at his outlook to things, you know, just the way he approaches it and it's not just about winning and that he's got enjoyment out of it and everything else suggests to me he's lower odds of it, but also the stuff he does is so impressive and so much better than everyone else. There's always that question mark uh, in that type of sport. So I would imagine he will be the one to do it. And I imagine it wouldn't count as a world record when he does it in his two hour project, but he was so close in, what was it, Berlin, I think uh, last year to do it on a record eligible course. 
Um, if it's not him, there'll be someone, I think, fairly soon. Because it also tends to be like with the four-minute mile. As soon as it was broken, it just makes people believe it's possible. And I think it was only about two weeks later that it was broken again. Kip Kipchoge ran the second half of Berlin at about the right kind of pace. So if he can do the second half at that pace and he's done the first half of that pace, I see no reason why... I mean, he's only 30 seconds off at this point. Um, I think it's, it's definitely feasible there. I don't think there's anyone else currently out there winning marathons, but maybe there's a guy who's 20 years old who's on the track now. Uh, and also, I think part of the reason this is improving more is because there's more of a switch to marathoning before people slow down. It used to be they do the 5 and 10K, and then as they were just about kind of retiring from that, they switched to the marathon, so they're not at their peak. I think now people are, uh, the top-level marathoners are, are coming while they're at their peak on the track. So they just got that extra little bit of speed. You're in a bit of a unique position to talk a bit about the the ultra scene in the UK and how that is either very similar or there are certain differences, you know, with the ultra scene in Europe or North America. What should we know that we maybe don't? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I definitely say that uh, marathoning and below is always a little bit more kind of anal, um, even on the trail, some degree, but certainly on the road. And then it, ultras on the road tend to be a little bit more similar to ultras on the trail. Um, and just, you know, people are there to, to enjoy themselves a bit, bit more low-key. Um, races like Comrades or Two Oceans in South Africa, the, the two biggest uh, ultras by participation in the world, they, um, they definitely have an amazing atmosphere. And they have the excitement of a marathon, but just with a little bit more friendliness I'm sure part of that as well is being in a different country, being in South Africa versus being in in the West, uh, where it's mainly you know kind of rich people running, while Comrades is a lot more of the the poorer locals who are who are running. So it's just a, a different outlook to it. It's not their um, it's not their hobby where they're trying to be very anal and you know look good for the bikini season or something. It's more people who are there to to test themselves as an athlete, I'd say, and, and to, uh, um, in many cases, try and win some prize money as well. It could be quite significant. So there's a good chunk of, of the faster guys there who can win intermediate time splits and stuff and, and win some money, not just the overall winners of the race. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think trail runners, no, no doubt, um, more laid back, uh, more friendly. Um, the UK running scene, I mean, it, the trail side of things is really, really low key. It's certainly changed since I left 10 years ago. Um, the, uh, there were hardly any races really overall uh, on the ultra scene and, and often they don't even have markings. So it might just be you're following a canal path, for example, but there's no markings and they just give you a little map in advance. Or in, in some of the other cases, it's a little bit more like fell running where, um, rather than them marking the course, you have to know it yourself and there aren't even necessarily trails with fell running. So there's an element of that, I think, in some of the longer ultras. But I think there was only 100 miler when I left the country, and I believe that one no longer exists, but there's a whole load of new ones that have sprouted up, as, as they have in North America, where um, 10 years ago there were far fewer um, 100 milers than there are today. But yeah, it's definitely a, a more unique scene in the UK versus Europe. Europe has the mega races, you know, UTMB and, and all the sky running events and the Ultra Trail World Tour, where you get thousands and thousands of people and you've got mountain villages with people with cowbells and massive crowds. The UK side of things is, is much more low key than that. Even the biggest races don't have that same kind of fanfare. Um, and 
I, I'm not quite sure why that is. I mean, partly, I suppose, that the Alps are just a little bit more epic than, than most of the terrain you get in the UK, although you do get some damn hard mountains, particularly on the fell running side of it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's something where I'd, I'd like to experience a little bit more of it at some point. Um, but at the moment, uh, it, I'm not going to go over there for a low-key race with all the travel when there's bigger races that I can do and, and focus on. So it's more, more like if it fits in with a, with a holiday back to the UK that, that I do something again there. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of nice to, to have all these different options though. That's one of the things I love about ultra running that you can go to UTMB and you can have thousands of people and media and, and cameras and everything else. Or you can go to a race that's probably going to have 10 people running a 50K and maybe some shorter distances with some more people. And it's really just, you know, go and have some fun and, and no one's even going to notice, never mind uh, having media caring about it. I've got to ask you some stuff about coaching. I'm curious what the most common mistake is that you see runners making both on the race course and then just in their own training. I would say it, it's a very simple one for what I would call number one, and that is in training it's not having as big enough difference between hard and easy runs. So basically not doing recovery runs as recovery, but instead doing them at a medium effort. Um, so the body doesn't get a chance to fully recover and then be fresh for the hard sessions and get a good stimulus there. Um, and in racing, I would say the the most common mistake is still going out too hard, just being too aggressive for the early stages. Because think about it in a hundred mile and you're running all day long, it's a pretty low intensity that's going to be sustainable and realistically have a good chunk of power hiking in there. And too many people will run too much of the hills early on rather than hiking where they should or just be a little bit too hard. And it, it may feel very easy, but it's not quite sustainable or because they're working a bit harder, they then lose sight of other stuff like maybe eating enough or uh, dealing with the heat or, or other similar things. So I would say it's, uh, you know, it sounds a little bit lame, but uh, people need to run easier, both in training and in racing, and they'll get better as a result of it. Hmm. So are you able to kind of quantify this? I mean, this is this is going to be a, another generalization because I know it's going to depend on, you know, the particular race and the course. But let's say somebody's you're trying to help me understand how easy I should, you know, be going out or how good I should feel, say, in the first third of a hundred are you like, I should be coming in between miles 30 and 40? Like, my God, I feel lazy. No, I mean, you'll still have muscle damage and other things there. I would say the simplest rule is um, to use a combination of your experience from having done other ultras. So even if it's your first hundred to, to bear that in mind of how you felt and how you felt particularly towards the end. Um, and also just to um, be able to, to ask yourself at any point, if you think you're going a little bit too hard, then you probably are. So just to have that simple concept of as soon as you're thinking, oh, maybe this is a bit too much effort or I'm huffing and puffing a bit too much, you definitely are. That That's the simple answer there. It sounds like what you're saying is like you at the start of the race, be thinking about either, and I'm curious to hear what specifically you would say if you would, like be thinking about mile 70 or be thinking about mile 80 or do you have a general rule where you know, it's like, this is the part, this is how far off, you know, from, uh, this is with how many miles left in a race, you need to be thinking about your reserves. I mean, I think in a hundred mile, you're, you're really thinking about that the whole time of just saving yourself for later. 
And then at some point it'll inevitably get hard and you just hope that you've got enough physical and mental energy left and enough motivation to push yourself. So I, I would say that the way to run a hundred miler is very to very much to um, be trying to keep it comfortable as long as you can, try and keep it enjoyable as long as you can, because those two things are going to be related um, and just not be in a rush. I mean, certainly don't wait around at aid stations. There's no reason to be there more than you know, a minute or two. Typically get what you need and get out of there, but just don't be rushing your pace too much and just keep it at a nice, comfortable effort. If you think about it, most people, their recovery run pace is probably going to be at least as fast as most of the paces they'll be doing throughout a hundred miler, except maybe near the end where they, they potentially slow down more. So you're just trying to minimize that slowdown. And the way I look at it is always in terms of the, the sums, which is if you go a mint a mile too quick, say the first 50 miles, you've saved 50 minutes, but that's quite a big change in pace. That might be quite a lot more aggressive and that's a minuscule difference. But in the second half, if you're really fading, then um, you know you might be death marching and doing 50 minute mile pace on the flat. You might be sitting in an aid station for three hours. So the, the time penalty is huge. And um, Bruce Fordyce, the multiple time winner of Comrades, he always used to say, and that, that race is a double marathon. He used to say, if you got to halfway a minute too quick, you lose eight minutes in the second half. And I would argue in a hundred miler, it's even more so. So if you're just even five minutes too quick to halfway compared to what the optimal might be for what's going to be totally sustainable, you might be losing an hour in the second half or more. Uh, and, you know, that's that's a pretty big penalty for just barely going any slower and just trying to keep it easier. But it, it's difficult to do that. It takes a lot of discipline. And, and each time that you manage to do that better and have a good 100 mile finish, it's easier to buy into it for the next time. But in the moment, there's a lot of, oh, this guy's running past me or he's running uphill. I'm I'm hiking. I could do more now. But that's the whole point. You can always do more. Otherwise, it's clearly too high in intensity. It sounds to me like you are saying this is the advice I'm giving to someone, whether you are running your first hundred or whether your goal in a particular hundred is getting on top of that podium. Yeah, no, I completely, it's the same tactic. It's the same mentality. Um, same with a marathon, you know, you've got to be pacing for what is sustainable for you. You don't go off at a, an aggressive pace or throw in weird fartleks in the middle of it, which is the equivalent of pushing harder on a hill, for example, in a, in a trail race. So, um, yeah, it's just about trying to be smart. And the more races you get, the more you can dial that in and you can afford to take a little bit more risk, but especially the first time you do a hundred miler, it's better to just think of it as a learning experience and just see how it goes and then know that it's inevitably going to get tough. And it's going to be how well you can deal with that and how, how well you can head off the worst of that. But um, I find it, it, it's, you know, it, one of the great challenges of a hundred miler is how well you can save yourself for the latter stages because there's inevitably going to be loads of muscle damage, loads of fatigue, difficulty eating, all of these things. So you're just trying to put yourself in a position that you don't slow down a lot. And, and you know, if you're trying to win the race, that means that those paces early on are obviously still reasonably quick, but they're well within your comfort zone. If you look at guys like Rob Krah, um, like Killian, they might be going quick in the early stages of a race, but they are so relaxed. And, and the kind of things you'll often see in the commentary, whether it's uh, Iron Far tweeting or other things, is they're saying, oh yeah, the guys all came in together and, and Rob Krah or Killian looks very relaxed. The rest of them are working hard because they're the ones who are going at their easy effort and the other guys are just pushing too hard to stick with them. By the way, there was that article, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, about high-tech ways to train for marathons. And I saw that you retweeted Mario Fraioli, who, who said, quote, 
This article is irresponsible and just plain wrong on a number of levels. You cannot hack your way to becoming a better marathoner. Run a lot, get out of your comfort zone a few times a week, eat well, get enough sleep, and do this for a long time. There are no shortcuts. Sorry. I completely agree with that. I mean, it, ultimately, that there are no shortcuts. Uh, one of the beautiful things about endurance training, whether it's running, cycling, whatever, is you gotta you gotta put the work in. You know, and, and it's a simple formula of you gotta do some hard stuff, you gotta recover from things, you gotta do some long stuff, and you gotta do some good volume. And if you can keep that up consistently, you improve. In your own coaching and in your coaching business, I mean, is this just something that they actually do really need coaches to keep reminding them of is the there are no shortcuts oh that's a big part of coaching no doubt about it i mean i, I get people asking me things like should i use this face mask that uh, helps with altitude stuff and makes it harder on my lungs or should i use cryotherapy or this or that so first of all they're usually picking things where there's little to no scientific evidence that's even useful at all but even if it is, it might be, you know, a half a percent improvement or something. And I just say, look, the fundamentals here are the thing that will give you the biggest benefit to your fitness is training versus not training. So that, that's, that's, you know, massive percentage improvement in, in, in your fitness from doing training. Second biggest thing is sleep. And so rather than spend lots of money and some of your time going to get cryotherapy or something, get 15 minutes more sleep per night and you'll probably get a bigger improvement from that. I mean, the basics are the most important stuff. It's what areas are going to make significant differences. And that's really going to be much more to do with, yeah, train well, um, sleep well, eat well, do those things. And all the other stuff is much more infinitesimal. And if you bear in mind that most people are not at the 99th percentile of where they, they could be getting to, um, you know, Kipchoge, yes, maybe these tiny little things here and there are going to make the difference to go from two hours and 30 seconds to just under two hours. But for most of us, there's loads left on the table of the easy stuff to improve where you could, you know, save 30 minutes in your marathon time. So why bother focusing on the stuff that's going to save you one minute um, and will cost you lots of money? I'm curious how well you practice what you preach let's say specifically on this sleep front? I'm, I'm pretty good overall. I mean, I'm, I'm not as good as I'd like to be, and that would apply to most things in my training, eating, alcohol consumption, and, uh, and general lifestyle. But uh, I would say a, a low amount for me is eight hours. I typically try to get close to, 12, to, to 10 hours, um, and it's usually somewhere around nine, nine and a half. So I, I'd, I'd say I'm pretty good at, at getting a decent night's sleep. That is pretty good. I like this whole conversation. Basically, what I'm learning is relax, sleep more, and, uh, you know, just chill out. Yeah, and, and, and that'll allow you to do the hard work to a higher quality, so you'll get more bang for your buck. Rather than just doing loads of mediocre, medium effort runs, which will give you some benefit, but it just won't be as effective as potentially doing less training, but having more focus on what the purpose of every run is and what it's meant to achieve for you. Last question. Again, you've had this remarkable consistency throughout your career. Um, seems to me this is a pretty key question for a lot of people, which is, you know, if we're going to try to have these healthy long-term relationships with running and training, what are some of your best thoughts about how to avoid that crash and burn? Yeah, I would say it's kind of like an ultra where 
it's not that you can completely avoid problems, it's how you deal with them. And that's what makes the difference. So I've certainly had times where I've overtrained a little bit, like that was clearly the case going into um, Western States this year. And I only had two months to be able to try and fix it. And I couldn't be sure exactly where I was, but at least after Western States, I've got a little bit more opportunity now to hopefully fix it. So I think it's mainly just that when I could tell that I was getting physically or mentally uh, overstrained and, and burnt out, I tend to back off and say, okay, well, you know, I've got to, I've got, if I want to, to get better again, rather than double down doing more training because I'm not doing as well as I want, I've got to do less and, and give my body a chance to, to recover more. So I think that that's a really important reason why I've been able to run consistently through the last 15 years. I have had injuries throughout that. I have had um, times where I've, I've definitely burnt out a little bit, but by first of all, keeping my training and racing fresh and interesting. So doing different things like costumes, like road versus trail versus mountain versus desert. All of that helps a lot. But I think the biggest thing is just backing off when the body is giving clear signals rather than doubling down and doing harder training, which will be counterproductive at that point. The next thing on your plate, I mean, certainly the next big thing I'm guessing is UTMB. Yeah, that's the next big thing. I've got a, a local trail marathon this weekend, so that'll just be a good workout. And then uh, I've actually got a 5K road race next week um, just because it's a local thing and friends of mine are doing it. It's not because I think it's the best training for UTMB. It's just uh, it's a convenient thing and there's a beer festival right afterwards. So it's <laughs> it fits in with, with the way I like to live my life. So uh, I'll, I'll be doing that too. But they're the only two things before UTMB. And then after UTMB, I'll just see how I feel. I, there's a couple of extra things I'd like to do later this year, but they will be totally dependent on how my body and my mind feel after doing UTMB. And, and that, again, is totally related to that whole burnout uh, discussion we just had. I'm going to be very interested to see you know, how this goes, and I'm certainly wishing you the best uh, in this upcoming race. And here's to uh, keeping it relaxed and uh, you know, solving problems and dealing with them as they come up. Thank you. I mean, it sounds boring, but it's it's not like you, you're not putting the effort in. It doesn't mean like you're not passionate about stuff. It's just there's the realism of crap's going to happen and you've got to be able to deal with that. And that's how you can get more enjoyment out of it. I, I, I'm very mindful in some of my races, actually, to to try and enjoy them in the moment. Like the last couple of times at Leadville, when I was near the end and I knew I'd won because I had at least an hour lead, I was thinking, OK, well, let's just cruise into the finish. Let's take it in. It's a beautiful sunset. Let me enjoy being in the lead in a race rather than stress, 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 and then get a trophy, go home, put the trophy away and move on. It, you've got to actually enjoy the, the process of, of everything you're doing. And, and I think that's also a really key part to avoiding burnout. Amen. Well, hey, Ian, again, thank you for this time and uh, I hope to connect again sometime down the line and, and really all the best, you know, when you get over to Europe and uh, uh, here's hoping for good results for you. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Good to speak to you. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Ian for the conversation. And you can head over to charmanultra.com to learn more about Ian's coaching. And you can find him on all of the various social medias at Charmanian. I also want to say thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. And if you are enjoying these off-the-couch episodes, we would very much appreciate it if you would tell your running-loving or running-hating friends about it. Leave us a nice rating or review in iTunes, or leave us a comment in the show notes to this episode on Blister to let us know what you think. Until next time, keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.